in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn with reference to all creation. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, things visible to things invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him or unto him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Paul has been explaining, of course, in these passages, the uh, preeminence of Christ in all things. First, with regard to the redemption of sinners, back in uh, verse 14. Christ is not merely one of many mediators, we learned, or the mere way of entry into the Christian life to be supplanted later by angels and other routes of access to God. He is the sole mediator between God and man. And the redemption of sinners was wrought by his paying with his blood the ransom due to God's offended justice to release men from the captivity that they were under to the guilt and misery of sin, canceling the sinner's legal guilt before God and the punishment that was pronounced against that guilt so that they might be innocent and righteous and perfect before God and before his law. Christ preeminent with regard to the redemption of sinners. And then, of course, he pronounced Christ to be and revealed Christ to be preeminent with regards to the creation. First of all, by his uniqueness as a divine being, the image of the invisible God. Christ is God visible, God manifested in, in his holiness, in his righteousness, in his love, in his grace, and his truth, and every other attribute of God. And not merely was Christ the chief of angels or some super exalted man, but Christ is the true God manifested now to the eyes and to the understandings of men, preeminent uh, as unique from the creation, as the true God. And secondly, he is preeminent with regard to his relationship to the creation. He is the one that is called the prototakos, the firstborn. He is the chief and the Lord of creation, as we saw a couple of weeks ago. And he explained this uh, this. Uh, relationship as the firstborn, as the chief and lord and heir of all things, uh, in the next verse, and that is that he is considered the firstborn particularly because he himself is the creator. Verse 16, by him were all things created, the things that are in heaven, the things that are in earth, the things visible, the things invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. He is the God of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the seas, and all that in them is. He is the eternal word. He is the wisdom of God revealed in Proverbs as the one who created all things by the word of his power. All things were made by him. John chapter 1, verse 3, I believe. And without him was not anything made that was made. So that we found that the doctrine of both the New Testament... And the doctrine of the Old Testament agree that the eternal Son of God, the wisdom of God, the Word of God, Jesus Christ, by His, as Owen put it, immediate operation, was Creator. So that the creation was immediately and eminently and signally assigned to Him. And it was not merely a creation of some things, as if Christ created the earth, but not the heavenly things, but it was a complete creation. Christ brought everything into existence, the things upon the earth, the visible things, the entire physical universe, yes, and the things in heavens, in the heavens, the invisible things, the entire spiritual creation, angels, the souls of men, the heavenlies. And then, of course, in direct refutation of the Colossian uh, heresy, Paul specifically lists a subcategory of the heavenly things, all the spiritual authorities of the heavens, the thrones, the kingly seats of the saints who reign in heaven, and the lordships and principalities and dominions, those three being the angelic hosts and their seats of power, both good and evil. 
Christ was the creator of these things as well, or especially. And as creator of them, he cannot be among them or equal to them or subject to them. But he is, of course, highly exalted over them. And uh, I should point out there was a some uh, perhaps lack of clarity in my language. I did not mean to say that uh, Christ in his original creation, created evil angels in their seats of authority, but rather Christ created all of the heavenly hosts. And of course, uh, when the angels the angels fell and became demons, and the, the world uh, by Adam's sin fell into corruption, uh, there was given unto Satan uh, and to his uh, fallen angel co-patriots uh, those uh, seats of dominion that they hold over uh, the uh, uh, souls of sinful men and to some degree over the affairs of the earth uh, so that uh, uh, so that they remain those same principalities and authorities and powers uh, but yet uh, with an evil purpose now but yet Christ is indeed a Lord over all of those things as well now as he continues Paul here in the second part of verse 16 and in the first and in verse 17 he continues his explanation of what it is for Christ to be the firstborn with reference to all creation he says uh, going back to verse beginning of verse 16 because by him were all things created the things in the heavens and the things upon the earth the visible things and the invisible things whether thrones whether lordships whether principalities whether authorities or powers all things is where we begin today all things through him and unto him have been created. And he is before all things, and all things by him stand together or have their coherence. Uh, so as he continues this explanation of what it is for Christ to be firstborn with reference to all creation, he says three things. He says, first of all, he reasserts that Christ is the creator. But he uses here... A, a very subtle change. He, he changes verb tense. He changes uh, to give, which is a different shade of meaning, and he, he adds some some more clarifying uh, modifiers there. Secondly, he asserts Christ's pre-existence to all things, and then thirdly, he says that Christ is not merely the creator but the preserver as well, the active maintainer of the fabric of creation. And uh, we want to look at those three things today as he completes his description of what it is for Christ to be the firstborn with reference to all creation. Now he says, first of all, all things through him and unto him have been created. Now, of course, at first sight, this would just seem to be redundant, wouldn't it? Isn't this just a restatement? of what he said just uh, uh, in the beginning of the verse, by him were all things created. But on a closer examination, we find something uh, something other than this to be true. It's not merely redundant. Uh, the, the apostle's language is very specifically chosen. There is a distinction here. It is a fine distinction, admittedly, but it is a slightly different emphasis. And there are, in fact, three distinctions between this last clause of verse 16 and what came before, there is, as I said, a difference in the verb tense, which is related to the second difference, which is a difference in the choice of preposition. And then there is a difference in uh, the fact that he adds another uh, modifier to the statement that uh, Christ is the creator of all things. And uh, this gets a little bit detailed, but uh, I think if you'll follow it closely, uh, it might be helpful. Because it is meaningful, it isn't just a restatement. Uh, Paul doesn't do that, especially so close together. He wouldn't say one thing and then immediately say it again with a different, uh, different uh, tense of the same verb. Now the first, uh, the first time, as a bit of a grammar lesson, the first time this was uh, stated, at the beginning of verse 16, he used what is called in Greek the aorist tense. We don't have that in English. Uh, so it's sometimes difficult for us to grasp. But to explain what it would mean in a usage like this, it's simply the idea, as the grammarian puts it, of simple occurrence, which in this case would have been in the past. It doesn't say anything about the manner of what it's describing or the length of what it's describing. It just presents a fact. 
something that happened. It simply happened. Christ created all things. Uh, but now, in the latter part of verse 16, when he says this again, he has, he has changed tenses to the perfect tense. And once again, this does not have an exact parallel to the English perfect tense. They don't overlap really. They overlap, but they don't, uh, they don't exactly parallel. In Greek, the perfect tense is the, what is called the tense of a completed action, especially with regard to a result. In this case, it would view the action as a process which, in the past, which reached a point of culmination and completion with results that continued to remain up to the time of the one who was making the statement. Uh, so that the use of the tense here accomplishes a couple of things. First of all, it emphasizes the completeness of the action, and this would be a re-emphasis on what was said before. It was set forth before as a fact. Christ created all things. But now it is emphasized as to the fact that it is the finished work of creation. Christ created and then finished this old creation this old creation, because you know there's a new creation and it's a different thing. This old creation was begun, carried on, and completed by Christ. It is, in that sense, like a summary, the use of this tense is, of Genesis 1 through Genesis uh, 2 verse 3. Of course, in Genesis chapter 1, we have the description of how God in six days created. It was a process, wasn't it? It wasn't immediate like that and everything was there. But one day it was this, the next day it was that, the next day it was this. The creation was a process over six days. And then uh, it says, verse chapter 2 verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. So it's like a summary. Uh, six days of creative action and energy, then completion and culmination and the conclusion of the created work. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. But secondly, the use of the tense here, perhaps more importantly, uh, expresses that the present creation, the, 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 the creation that Paul was then and all of the people he was talking to were then living in, was and is the result, the continuing result, of Christ's past and completed creative action. Again, the specific language, and as we've seen this so often in this, in this group of verses where Paul seems to be saying things again and again in a more and more specific way, as if to cut off any potential of being misunderstood, like it was perfectly clear when he said that Christ created all things, but then he goes on to say, visible in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, especially the angels, you're cutting off all of the misunderstanding. Same thing here. It's as if he, he was just, uh, as a matter of course, saying that uh, Christ had created all things. And then it occurs to him, perhaps, that uh, he ought to be more specific about uh, how he's explaining that, so as to avoid any possible misunderstanding or objection. Because, as you know, whenever you're dealing with heretics, <laughs> heretics have this way, if you're not absolutely explicitly uh, definite about what you're saying, that they'll take your words and twist them. And so he's cutting it all off. So he decided to say this thing again, even more carefully, even more specifically, laying particular emphasis on his doctrine. It's as if he says, now look around. Look at everything you can see. And everything you can't see, for that matter. This standing creation. This, this is a work of old times, of ancient times. In the beginning, Genesis 1.1, it is the work of Jesus Christ, of the Son of God, that remains today. You see, this creative work that we're talking about isn't something that's just something that we hear about from a long time ago, that has nothing to do with us and which we have no contact with. It remains today. It's the world in which we live. And, 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 and in fact, it's us, ourselves, the result of this work of the Son of God, Jesus Christ in creation. So if that gives you some idea then, of why he changes the verb tense to move from perhaps a more general statement uh, to a more 
uh, we would say, theologically specific or doctrinally specific type of statement so that there would be no misunderstanding about what he's saying. The the, the work stressing the the culmination and continuing result up to the time of, of his speaking, of course to our time today, of the creative work of Jesus Christ, to, to bring it right up to them now. Now, of course, I said there were three differences, only one of which was the verb tense. The second change is in the choice of preposition. A very slight change, but again, I think appropriate to the change in emphasis of the verb. The first statement, which we said was in the aorist tense, uh, used the prep, uh, Greek preposition en, uh, which is usually translated in English as in or by, in him or by him, were, were all things created. The second preposition is the one that I've translated, it's dia, which I've translated through. It's usually translated through or by. Now remember that the first clause considered the act of creation as simply having occurred, as just this thing that had happened, as a simple statement of fact. But the second looks upon it as its continuing existing result in effect. The first preposition with its clause views the creation from this standpoint. It looks back and sees this action done, this creation made, and it sees all of the elements of the creation contained in Christ. He was not an inferior agent. In other words, he wasn't someone who just assembled the parts. Okay? You, you get the idea, like, like we'd order a, a model or something, and, and uh, you get the model, and it's already there, it's not finished, but all the parts are there, and you put it together. You glue it together, you, and you, in a sense, you could say you've created it. But you haven't really created it, you've just put the parts together. And, and so, the first clause, the preposition there, is sort of defeating that notion. That Christ isn't merely the assembler of creation, but that all of the elements of creation uh, were brought into being in him or by him. He, he didn't go outside of himself to get anything, for any aid, for any tool, for any help. He didn't do it as some, some inferior thing. All of the creation was created in him. All of the elements were there. He brought them into being. He wasn't an assembler. He was the creator of noth- out of nothing. The second clause, with its preposition, viewed the creation from a different standpoint. It looks back and sees a process, as we said, six creative days, brought to culmination, brought to completion. And then the, the result of that work, of that process, of that six days of creative action, which culminated there at the, at the uh, end of the sixth day, was the standing creation that's right, that, that continues right up to our own surroundings. And this result came about through Christ. He affected the result to which that clause points. And so the stress then of this, and its, this clause and its preposition is a more active stress on Christ's creative activity, on his work, on his, on his actual creating, his doing, his work, his, the process with the result. It was all through him, by his work. So you see the difference. The one leans more towards uh, showing that the, it was a, a work that was simply accomplished by him. He didn't get any outside aid. It was all contained in him. He brought it into being. The second looks more specifically at the actual creative process and identifies Jesus Christ as the one who did that work. Uh, shades of different difference, but evidently important, or else the apostle wouldn't be making them. And then he adds the third difference between the beginning of verse 16 and the end of verse 16 is that he adds this vital phrase. He says, not only does he say, uh, all things through him have been created, he says, all things through him and unto him have been created, which is sometimes rendered for him. I think that is the, the AV, uh, which seems to be the way that uh, a lot of Greek prepositions are rendered in English translations as for what is being spoken of here? This concept of his having created <clears throat> unto him all things is the idea of the final purpose of creation. Uh, the final purpose of the standing continued creation. It is 
for Christ. It is unto Him. Uh, its end is found in Him, in His glory, His magnification, His honor. The making of the worlds, the first creation, the old creation was in the Son and by the Son, yes, but it was also for the Son. He didn't do it for anyone else, you see. That's the point. It wasn't. We've gotten so much so far that he didn't go outside of himself for any aid. It was all he brought everything into being through his own power. It was all the elements contained in him. He he out of nothing he creates, and it was also his creative process, his work. But then, thirdly, is because we might say all of that, and then yet it might have been for someone else. But it wasn't. It says that this work was not only by Him and in Him, it was for Him and unto Him. It was for the Son. Apart from Christ and the glorification of Christ, the creation has no use, no meaning. Now this is a point that we must not miss. Creation's purpose is to glorify the eternal Son of God. We know that this is a, uh, a major Old Testament doctrine. Even, even a, just a cursory reading of the Psalms, uh, just for one example, Psalm 148, uh, a lot of the Psalms we sing every Sunday, the, the one I, from that group of which I often choose for the first Psalm, the Psalms of Praise, uh, more specifically Psalms of Praise. These whole group of Psalms which, which are devoted to showing how the creation is to glorify God. In this call in Psalm 148 for all creation to praise Him, even things we wouldn't consider to be rational. Praise the Lord from the heavens, praise Him in the heights, praise Him all His angels, praise Him all His hosts, praise ye Him sun and moon, praise ye Him star, all ye stars of light, praise Him ye heavens of heavens and ye waters that be above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For he, why? For He commanded and they were created. He has also established them forever and ever, and has made a decree which shall not pass. Praise the Lord from the earth, who, ye dragons and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and vapors, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruitful trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle, creeping things and the flying fowl. Who else? Kings of the earth and all people, princes and all judges of the earth, both young men and maidens, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is excellent. His glory is above the earth and heaven. Old Testament, fundamental Old Testament doctrine. The created universe is made and called upon to glorify God. And now we see that, that more uh, detailing of the doctrine. The created universe is made by the eternal Son of God, and it has its end and fulfillment in the glorification of the eternal Son of God. And then here in Psalms 148, we'll come back to this, but I'll go ahead and point it out, we have the same progression that we're going to have in, in Colossians uh, chapter 1 here, where we move from the old creation to the new creation. He also exalts the horn of his people, the praise of all his saints, even of the children of Israel, a people near to him. Praise ye the Lord. Uh, we'll see that redemption follows the new creation, follows upon the old creation that Christ might have, pre and he's the creator of both, that Christ might have preeminence in all things. So, so the created universe was made and continues to stand, all of its elements brought forth by the Son didn't go outside of Himself. All that creative process of six days executed by Him, finished and culminated, and remaining to be seen with our own eyes around us, and in fact our own bodies and souls. And all of this unto Him to glorify the Son. So He is the firstborn with reference to all creation. He has this preeminence because it is His creation. All of the elements of it flow from Him. It is His immediate work of power, and it exists solely to bring glory to Him. Do you understand how He can be called the firstborn? How much more preeminence could ever be imagined? A little bit more, uh, because He's going to add to it. Verse 17, two more things. And He is before all things, and all things by or in Him stand together, or cohere. 
and he is before all things. Now, of course, this makes perfect sense. Uh, if he made everything that exists, or rather that was a product of creation, if he made everything that was created, then it is naturally implied that he himself, in actual fact, in point of time, must have existed before the created things. Simple, logical uh, deduction. And this is exactly what the Apostle says. He is before all things. The all things here being the same, all things of verse 16. Every created thing. He pre-existed every created thing. Now this use of the word before is quite... So some, so there have been certain uh, commentators who wanted to escape from the idea that uh, before here means pre-existent, and so they said this is a thing that means he was over them all, just like saying he was preeminent, because they didn't want to admit that Jesus is God, uh, amazingly. Uh, but this is a very scriptural use of this, of this word before. We can see this in uh, three examples, uh, specifically Galatians. You don't have to turn there. Galatians 1.17 not, this is Paul. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me. What does he mean? In point of time, they were apostles before he became an apostle. Also, uh, Romans chapter 16, verse 7. Salute Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me, in point of time, their conversion preceded Paul's conversion. Uh, then, John chapter 5, verse 7. The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. That is, in point of time, before he can get to the pool, somebody else gets to the pool. There's also the... Another passage which is a little more difficult to understand, uh, if I can find it offhand, uh, which is the one in which John says that, uh, oh, here it is, John chapter 1, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. That latter usage there, for he was before me. Very interesting statement by John, uh, when, of course, we know that, that uh, John was born before Jesus, and, and uh, John instead says that Jesus preexisted John. Uh, John knew that Jesus was the eternal Son of God. In fact, whenever it is used of people in the New Testament, it always has this meaning, prior in time. Now, here's the thing. We're talking all things here, we've seen is every created thing. Every created thing. Everything that was created. Now it says that Jesus was before it. Jesus was before every created thing in point of time. Now, that statement removes him entirely from the class of things that are created, right? The, but the, what's the only non-created thing that exists? That's God. Because everything else is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were, were made by him, and there was not anything uh, made that was not made by him. The only non-created thing is God himself. So that Christ then, if he is removed entirely from the category of created things because he is before all things, must be God. The Son is the eternal Son in the trinity of the Godhead. And I would have you notice um, that it says here, he is before all things, not he was before all things. That is important. Uh, the, the natural progression of the tenses, if we were talking about a person, we would say, and he was, before, so like Paul says, and, and they were uh, in Christ before me. We use the past tense when we talk about something being before. Uh, he went to the store before I did. We always use the past tense. We, we don't say he went to the store before I am. We don't say that. That's poor grammar. But it says here, and he is before all things, not he was. And the reason why that is, is that whenever you're talking about God, to say he was is to imply time. But God is not measured by time. He is, I am. Which is, as you saw in uh, 
John chapter 8, Jesus says, they they said, you're not 50 years old. How how have you seen Abraham? Abraham lived uh, a thousand years ago. They're asking Jesus a question. Because Jesus is saying that Abraham rejoiced my, to see my day. And Abraham saw my day and was glad. And they say, how, how, do you, how are you talking about Abraham? You're not 50 years old. How can Abraham see your day? And Jesus says, Truth, truly, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. He doesn't say before Abraham was, I was. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Because God revealed himself in the Old Testament as I am. Because God is eternal. And that's, and that's why it says, Then they took up stones to cast at him, because they were going to stone him for blasphemy, for saying that he was God. So here you are, chapter, verse 59 of John 8. Jesus says that he is God. God always is, because he is from eternity to eternity. He is not was or going to be. He is. He's unchanging. He is. In fact, time is contained in God. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So Christ is the firstborn because he is before all. And it's kind of nifty in the Greek, but I probably couldn't explain it to you right now. Uh, You have to see it. Uh, So once again... It is a testimony to his preeminence to all as the one who is before all. It says, thirdly, all things by him or in him stand together or have their coherence. Not only did Christ create, not only do the results of his creative activity continue today, but it is by the continuing exercise of his power that they remain standing and coherent and together. Once again, this is the same all things. It's the creation, the whole creation. Only this time we're not talking about the creation of it, but the sustaining of it, the upholding of it that's in view. Uh, The exercise of providence, certainly, but there's more than that. The idea here, I think, is the power that holds together the very fabric of the being of creation, without which creation would just dissolve into chaos and nothing. And uh, the verb here is an interesting choice again. It's used elsewhere in the New Testament. It has two distinct meanings, depending on whether it's used in what's called a transitive or an intransitive uh, form. The intransitive use, which is what's here, means to stand together. For example, I mean, it's used very literally of of people and things. Uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 32. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they saw they were awake, uh, sorry, and when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. That's the word that we've got here. The two men that stood, or the two men that stood with him. Uh, it is also used of the creation only one other place. I think there's only these three intransitive uses. Second Peter three five. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. This is kind of a strangely translated passage, but the gist of it it's kind of a strangely written passage, but the gist of it is that the earth was the earth itself was standing together with itself. It was cohering in the water and out of the water. Uh, it's, the, it's the whole thing going back to Genesis 1 uh, there that is explained. Uh, first, um, it says, God, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Then verse 6, And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was, it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. 
And God said, uh, this is on the, I guess, the third day, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. So you see this gradual process by which, uh, by which the earth, the land, I guess we would say, coheres together, standing in the water and out of the water. And it says, this they are willingly ignorant of, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old. They came into being, and the earth uh, uh, cohering together in the water and out of the water. <clears throat> so it's the idea of the earth cohering, standing together. Uh, now, as far as our passage in question, the scope is now much wider. Uh, we're not talking about the earth anymore, but all of creation, the visible universe, matter itself, the invisible realities. And, and so the idea here then is what causes this creation to remain, to exist, uh, to, to cohere, to hold together? Why doesn't it all entropy into chaos or fall apart or something? And it is because of the active uh, power, the active preserving power of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. This is the truth of the matter. The Son upholds all, He preserves it, He maintains it, and of course this is yet another proof of His divinity. For this very thing is attributed to God in the Scriptures. Acts 17.28, remember? God in whom we live and move and have our being. It's the same idea. Uh, also, uh, a couple of uh, psalm references. Psalm number 104 Verse 29, if I can find it here. Psalm 104, verse 29, which says, Thou hidest thy face, they are troubled. Thou takest away their breath, they die and return to their dust. And in fact, this whole thing uh, uh, is about the, how God created all things. He appointed the moon for seasons, the sun knows it's going down. Uh, Things like that, O Lord, how manifold are thy works, in wisdom hast thou made them all, the earth is full of thy riches. Thou sendest forth thy spirit, they are created, and thou renewest the face of the earth, the glory of the Lord shall endure forever. So on. Also Psalm 36, another psalm, Psalm 36, verse 6. Uh, thy righteousness is like the great mountains, thy judgments are a great deep, O Lord, thou preservest man and beast. Countless other texts. But here it is expressly attributed now to the Son of God. And also in, more exp in another passage, Hebrews 1.3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Upholding all things. Creation uh, continues in Christ. It is held together. It stands together. It coheres. There's something almost mystical about this. What is it that causes the whole fabric of creation to be maintained? It's, it's in Jesus, in the eternal Son of God, who's the creator and preserver of all things. So why is Christ the firstborn with reference to all creation? He's given us a lengthy answer. Because he created the entire creation, physical and spiritual. Because the present standing creation is entirely the result of Christ's work. Because the creation was created not only by him, but unto him, unto his purpose and to his glory and finding its meaning and fulfillment only in him. Because he is the eternal son of God, not created, but eternally preexistent to every created thing. Because the universe now stands and coheres only as a result of his continuing exercise of power. And that much, then, is Christ's relationship to the old creation as the firstborn, showing his preeminence in all things. I have four applications, brief applications. The first thing that I would point out is this. How abundantly and fully and undeniably these texts assert the divinity of Jesus Christ by his being distinct from the creation, by his pre-existence to every created thing, by his, ident his express identification with the creator God of Genesis 1, by the fact that all things are moving towards fulfillment in him and his glory, by his identification with the preserver God of Acts 17.28, in whom we live and move and have our being, 
by his being the visible representative of the invisible essence of God to the, to the understandings of men, what more clear statement could be desired, uh, what, I mean, short of what Jesus says in John 8, before Abraham was, I am, over and over and over again, he makes it absolutely clear that Christ is the, is the eternal God. He's the creator of all things. Secondly, application-wise, this passage, this group of passages, uh, verse 16 and 17, in this group of passages we see in the words of Owen that it was the eternal design of God that the whole creation should be put in subjection to the Word incarnate. It was the eternal design of God that the whole subjection the whole creation should be put in subjection to the Word incarnate. This is the same doctrine as we had in Philippians chapter 2, 9-11. through 11. Wherefore God also has highly exalted Him and given Him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, everything. Also, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 uh Verse 27, the first part, which says, For he has put all things under his feet, which is, inclu- which, is, which is everything except he which did put all things under him. And then Romans chapter 14, verse 11, For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. And Hebrews chapter 2, uh, verse 8, the first part, Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. You notice that it's not just the souls of men which he redeemed by his bloody death, but it's every created thing is subjected to Jesus Christ, the incarnate word, the wisdom of God dwelling with men Revelation chapter 5:13 Jesus exalted now in his ascension to the throne of God and every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever in the eternal counsel of God before there was any creation that even existed this was purposed and intended And so the making of all things and the preserving of them was so executed that Christ might have a right to the lordship of creation to be the firstborn that all preeminence might belong to him. It was the eternal design of God that the whole creation should be in subjection to the word incarnate. And this, of course, brings us to our next very important point, which is actually uh, part of the heart of the matter with Colossians. This is, a, this is a, an implication from this text, which he later brings out more specifically later. Uh, contrary to the doctrines of Plato and the philosoph- some of the Greek philosophers, which had been picked up in what was called Gnosticism, uh, which was part of the philosophy which was here being bred together with a, a sort of strange Jewish mixture that was creating this Colossian heresy, matter is not evil. The created universe is not defiling. See, this was very much part of the Colossian heresy. Uh, this is sort of seems odd to us because we don't we don't think we don't have very many people who think this way today exactly, in so many words. But it's something that usually gives way to asceticism, uh, and this was part of the Colossian heresy, evidenced by their asceticism and their subjection to human ordinances: touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using and their renewal of the Jewish law, the ceremonial Jewish law, on a basis which had never been intended in its original institution. God was not at never trying to say that some parts of his creation were dirty and filthy, and some parts were, were I mean, and, and spiritually impure and defiling, and other parts of it were good and righteous. He's not, I mean, that was not the purpose of dietary laws, to say that, that Pigs are defiling evil things, so you shouldn't touch them. And but cows are good spiritual things. That wasn't it at all. And that's in fact ridiculous. And it's denied all over the Bible. Uh, it's it's denied in the Old Testament and in the New. Um, 
but they were renewing it, the Jewish laws on this type of basis. Uh, and, and Paul shows the falsehood of it, the falsehood of this idea that matter is evil or that the physical creation is an evil, defiling thing by showing that it was the eternal Son of God who created it. That the creation was made by Christ as God and that in fact He's also preserving it and maintaining it actively and that it's moving towards His glory and fulfillment in Him. How can it be evil? In fact, that sort of view strikes also at the doctrine of the, of the, of the resurrection from the dead and the redemption of the body. How, how, can, how could they possibly think that they needed to separate themselves from that if it was, if it was even possible, short of going out of this world? How could they possibly think that they needed to separate themselves from that which was moving ultimately unto its fulfillment in the glorifying of the eternal Son of God? In, instead, what we learn, and we'll learn this again later more specifically, rather than the Gnostic ascetic view, we should make a use of the creation unto Christ's glory. We must not use the creation as common merely because that would be to separate it from Christ. We must attempt what is called by one author a profitable, sanctified use of the creatures in Christ. Uh, for example, First uh, Timothy, First Timothy chapter four, verses uh, four and five which is expressly dealing with this same type of ascetic error. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Also, uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 15. Under the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. Why is it defiled? Why is, why is this for them creation defiled? Is it because the creation is wicked? No, it's because they are wicked, spiritually wicked in their hearts. Unto them that are defiled and unbelieving already is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. Now, before we can have the full explanation of this, we have to have exposition of more verses, the verses that follow, because it's integrally related to Christ's dominion over the new creation and his creation of the new creation and his being firstborn of the new creation, as well as the old, which is explained in the following verses. But we can say this much right now. Matter and creation is not evil, but it must be used in accordance with its purpose, which is the ultimate glorification of the Son. But how little this is received... Uh, you see, we have a different error today, mostly in our culture, not asceticism, uh, but the use of the creation to the satisfaction of lusts. The world mocks this idea that, that, that creation must be used in accordance with its purpose to, as the ultimate glorification of the Son of God. It mocks it, and it uses the creature instead to oppose God and to nourish and satisfy every wicked lust of man. You see, that's the average worldling uses the creation not to glorify Christ or in a profitable spiritual way, but to, to nourish and inflame and satisfy every evil longing, covetousness, greed, filthy lasciviousness imaginable. But how many also who profess the name of God live in a kind of constant deadness to this rule as well? And what a check upon sin it would be if we could shake off uh, this deadness to this rule and what a godly restraint upon our own lusts of the flesh it would be if we too could learn to use the creation uh, actively, intentionally, at least in, in all that we do, that it would be in accordance with its purpose to glorify the eternal Son of God. Yeah. And uh, that bears further investigation. That's a whole sermon by itself. But it's an important principle to grasp. There are several principles, really, that first of all, you have to be a child of God before you can even do this, because unto the pure are all things pure, but unto them that are unbelieving is nothing pure. The, the plowing of the wicked is sin, the proverb says, because they can. They, and, and, until you are a child of God, you can do nothing right in accordance to God's word, because you don't do things for the glory of God and for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so even the plowing of the wicked is sin. Even their obedience to the standards of God is sin because it's not done unto the glory of God, unto the glory of the eternal Son of God. Even their use of physical things, which are good things, even if they use them in right ways, like nourishing their bodies, it's sin because they're not intending to glorify God in, what, in all that they do. They're not, they're not nourishing their bodies so that they can do the will of God. 
but so that they can go out and fulfill their own lusts and desires. So first of all, we have to be children of God before we can rightly use the creation, or, or we defile it. And, it just, and our defiling of it just furthers us in our wickedness. We have to be the children of God. And then secondly, it's, something that, it's not something that just sort of automatically happens because there's a sort of deadness to it that rests on our hearts. But we need to be actively aware that, that all the whole creation is to glorify the eternal Son of God. And so our, our participation in it, our being part of the creation, we ought to devote ourselves to the glorifying of Christ in all that we do and in all of our use of all things. Now, as I said, we'll, we'll continue to see this doctrine more fleshed out as, as we get through the next several verses, which is Christ's uh, preeminence in the new creation. And then it will return in an applicational way uh, as we get towards the uh, end of chapter 2. But we'll stop there for this morning, uh, having seen Christ's preeminence uh, over every created thing. Mm-hmm.